Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the CRE market. Obviously, uh, we may be in for some turbulent times here, as well as Upreach, 721 Exchanges, and some other very exciting topics. And joining me is Keith Nelson, who is Managing Partner at Dual City Investments. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy, for having me. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, and I think we have some pretty exciting topics teed up, um, but before we dive in, could you please give us a little bit of background on Dual City Investments? How long has the company been around and and how did you get into the space? Um, that's a great question. And uh, we probably need all of the show to, 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 to <laughs> follow up on how I got to that point. But um, uh, we, we started in 2014. Uh, I, I came from a law enforcement background. Uh, I was a uh, special agent with the DEA. Uh, myself and my partner, uh, we were actually on surveillance one day in, in a very affluent area of New York, and we were just kind of sitting there, being, you know, eating out of an old pizza box and saying, you know, where, what, what life choices did we, <laughs> did we not make to to do, be doing this and not be doing what these these people are doing? Um, and after you know a couple of years of just reading and research, you know, real estate was a was a common path to to wealth um so i decided to make the jump and uh we formed dual city in 2014 and we started off syndicating deals with you know friends and family um and then we that grew into our first fund in 2017 we did very well with that and uh yeah launched launched this we call it our last fund because it's evergreen it's gonna go on in per per perpetuity um at the beginning of the, uh, this year. So uh, we're pretty excited to see where 2023 takes us. I love that. Just uh, having one fund, having an evergreen fund. I have to say that um, that's a new one. You, your entry into the space, I haven't heard. That, that's definitely a new one. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting though, that that, that just kind of commonality of um, investment into real estate for a lot of people is is like a second career it's like you know you you start on one path and then you kind of decide you you know thinking one day maybe not the exact scenario you were in but you're just thinking one day is this really what i want to do um I, I and i think that makes you a better real estate investor and and you better at that career you know why because if i came straight out of college and that's all i knew this business is hard as you know uh, i probably would have burned out and been <laughs> not been in it but, um, you know, I've been, I've done the nine to five and I've done the, uh, you know, living paycheck by paycheck. And, um, I know what it's like if I had to give this up and go back. So it, it's <laughs> kind of puts you in a different mindset. So I, I do think that's important to, to have that life experience before you dive into this, uh, career path. Yeah. I think that that motivation is so important as, as is vision. And you know, when I was reviewing the Dual City website, 
and and I imagine that this kind of goes into your fund. But one thing that really stuck out to me was was that you know your website mentions that you focus on providing commercial real estate investment opportunities that put investor security in the forefront. And I I think that 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 actually is pretty unique. You know that that uh, a sponsor a, a fund manager would really stress investor security as as like the number one priority. So can you tell me a little bit like why why is that your mindset? Um, you know what led to that being being your priority? Sure. Well, uh, to start with, you know, in 2014 there weren't it wasn't as prevalent to be a real estate investor or syndicator, you know, or fund manager as it is now, right? I feel like everybody in their grandmother has, uh, you know, their their own syndication uh, business. Um, so when we started, it was it was family and friends' money, and the last thing we wanted to do was lose their capital. Um, so you know, we we did things the right the right way. We didn't buy properties based off of a, an Excel spreadsheet. You know, we we analyze it, over analyze it, reanalyze it, and um, you know, we've just come up with a conservative uh, method of of investing and keeping preserving their capital is always our our first goal. Um, you know, obviously followed by a positive return is our <laughs> close uh, second, you know, consistent return. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we've seen a lot of, um, I don't want to say shady, but not, you know, not above board groups make a lot of money and raise a lot of money mm-hmm. and they paid, they lined their pockets first and whatever was left, hopefully there was, they gave to their investors. And I know this firsthand because a lot of our investors came from a lot of those groups. Um, and I think this upcoming environment, I think we're going to see a lot more groups exposed. And you know, hopefully, the good groups are, are the ones that rise to the top and stick around. And um, you know, there there'll be less options, but quality options available for investors. Yeah, you know, I think you kind of hit on something the the long term thinking, the long term approach. I'm I'm reminded of the three rules of a family office. Don't lose money, don't lose money, and don't lose money. Um, you know, so, so that capital preservation, first and foremost, like you said, there's going to be a down market cycle. And, and if you, you know, if you burn investors, then, you know, great, I guess you made money in, in one market cycle and now you're out of the game, right? Yeah, I, I think that's the thing we're going to see that. Yeah. So, I want to now turn to your offerings, so the Dual City Advantage Fund. And from the webpage, I'm going to quote this exactly. The Dual City Advantage Fund is a blind pool private equity evergreen fund, which follows the same structure as a private upreit. So before we dive into the strategy of the fund, I actually just want to ask about upreits and 721 exchanges, because I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with those, but probably a lot of our listeners are not familiar with upreits and 721 exchanges. So would you be able to walk us through how those work? Sure. Um, so we modeled our fund uh, after a, a, a REIT, which is essentially a, a REIT, which is a real estate investment uh, trust. But the UP portion of it um, is actually standing for umbrella. I don't know where they got UP UP from, but uh, that gives the, the, the REIT the ability to use the 721 uh, tax exchange uh, where they can absorb properties, issue shares in a REITs case um, in lieu of cash. And, and by doing that, 
that defers the um, that defers the capital gains tax on that on that property for the whoever owned it. So they could come into that upread, own shares, you know, take have all the benefits as if they put cash in, but they just got paid out shares. And when they cash out of those shares, that's a taxable event. They'll be taxed on on their their basis in that original property at that time. So we we took that model and um, uh, we found out that well, I could do that in a private equity structure, five hundred six C, and uh, yeah, we we started that and we just modeled everything as if we were an upgrade. So we have the you know ninety percent of net um, profits go to investors. Um, you know, we we follow a, a similar fee structure of one and a half percent AUM fee, uh, and then the ten percent you know to the to the management team. But um, it's evergreen, which means there's no lockup period. We have we have uh, lines of credit uh, available to cash out investors if they want to take their cash and leave. Um, we we are we just started this year and uh, we're doing pretty well. We we have a consistent. So just about seven percent return, and uh, we hope that climbs over over the course of time. Um, and we just you know keep growing, and hopefully we get to that upreit uh, model as well. So the seven twenty one exchange that's basically uh, an alternative to a ten thirty one exchange for an investor who wants to exit like an individual property, not you know defer the capital gains tax, but. Um, by doing a 721 exchange into an upreit or an upreit like uh, fund, then they can become a passive investor after that exchange versus exchanging into uh, a property that they have to actively manage. Is that essentially the benefit of this? That's you hit it spot on. Yes, um, I, I you know I like to I like to tell uh, owners uh, you know of investment properties like. In my opinion, I mean, well, not my opinion. There's just way more flexibility in doing this than 741. Um, the only downside is when you cash out, you have to pay the tax man, and you know, there's there's no more rolling. You know, you 1031, you could, you know, swap until you drop. Um, in this, once you're in the units, you either stay in, or when you go to cash, you gotta you gotta pay your gains. But there is, you know, an interesting component you could tax blend this, right? So if you had a million dollar gain, it's not all or nothing one year. You you could, if you want to buy a, you know, a lake house, you could take out, you know, 300,000 one year, leave the rest in and then tax plan, you know, some subsequent years. Interesting. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with DSTs. It sounds like this, this, you know, this type of product would be roughly analogous to some D, a DST but uh, structure structure as a REIT, you know, there are rules, regulations that go along with that particular product wrapper. The DST, by contrast, also has its own rules and regulations. But you know, in my experience, those are they're pretty strict with with a DST with the seven deadly sins and the type of assets that a DST can hold and operate. Um, so, would, is the is the upreach structure? Is it more flexible in terms of the types of assets? I mean, I guess wh why would an investor choose an upreit versus a DST? What 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 would be the deciding factor that can help them choose? So my experience with DSTs is that they are uh, they are closed ended funds or, or raises. 
and they're typically locked up for a significant period of time. Um, but when I was looking at them you know, several years ago, I think the typical term is like 10 to 15 years of a lockup. Um, the main difference here is we have a liquidity component where you're not locked up and you can tax plan request funds out. And if the funds are available, you know, you can go on your own way and, and do what you want. And it's not an all or nothing thing. So if you're in a DST, when you exit that, you either have to 1031 as something else or cash out hundred percent, you know, at that time. So those are, those are the two main differences. As far as the asset types, um, I don't know how it is exactly for DSD. I'd assume it's the same way, but as long as we identify what we're looking for in our PPM, you know, that's the, those are the guidelines that we, that we go follow. Yeah. DSTs are a lot more strict in terms of being very limited into how much capital improvement that they, they can do to an asset. So they're kind of limited to like core, maybe core plus type assets where, you know, no, no, as far as I understand, rarely ground up construction. Uh, no value add, no opportunistic. The interesting thing to me with the upread or an upread like structure would be as as contrasted with a DST, you'd have that option for more immediate liquidity. You know, whereas a DST, you know, I, I think typically five to ten years, you know, maybe as much as fifteen. But then on the other hand, if if your fund is perpetual or evergreen, um, could an investor stay invested for let's say twenty years and just indefinitely let it let it ride sure yeah um, we can uh, we don't uh, we're also looking into um uh the ability for investors to compound their returns right so we pay out quarterly and instead of taking that you know out of cash you know, could they reinvest it we're, we're we're working that into our software so we're able to do that and they're able to see it in real time but um yeah they they can sure and that's our that's my goal right so uh my goal is if you know, someone puts capital with us, they can request it out. My our goal as fund managers is to get that dividend up um, as high as possible and, and consistently, which is the most important uh, word. Um, you know, meet those, not miss a payment, and consistently rise our uh, our raise our dividend as we uh, get more profitable. Interesting. Okay, so I want to ask about DCAF specifically. A uh, couple more aspects of it. So, I noted from the literature that um, you know this fund can utilize the tax deferred exchange to transact in more situations than the competition. Um, I saw that quote on your website. So, what exactly does that mean? What are, What are the situations where you have the flexibility to transact where the competition would not? Uh, that, that simply means that most most private equity funds don't have that 721 code written in their their documents. So okay. unless they go and rewrite all their documents, uh, they won't be able to do it. So, I mean, not saying it, it, it's impossible, they can certainly do that, but we're, we're just set up day one. We don't have to go back and, you know, get all our investors to agree that we're gonna start doing this. So we're just set up that way. Um, it's probably, could use a better wording in that scenario. No, but, no, uh, I, th I think I get it though. The, the point is by structuring it that way upfront, um, you're reducing the friction, right? Even though that type of transaction might be possible with another fund. It, you know, you also mentioned the liquidity um, that you have uh, lines of credit or capital pools for investors who, who want to exit. Is that something that's typical with a fund of this structure? Um, of an evergreen fund, I would say, yeah, there's got to be some liquidity component 
um, to it. But again, we, we are structured as a private equity fund, so there's no secondary market. Um, so, you know, if, if we don't have a capital available, we can't return investor capital, right? There's not where we're going to start selling off assets and, and hurt everyone's return. Um, but if it's available, our lines of credit are, are there, then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll meet that request. Um, our goal is to take us to eventually, you know, uh, the secondary market, which means we have to become um, a publicly traded upgrade. So that's that's our ultimate goal is to to have this structure and be able to flip that switch when when we're at that size and um, have a secondary market for all investors to to take advantage of. And what is that, you know, the, the AUM size or market cap size? What What is that number where it make, you know, economics make sense to to become publicly traded? That's a great question. Um, we're not that far down the line to even consider that yet. Um, like I said, we just we just launched this, I think, in February. Um, so the answer is I don't know. I, I would think 500 million um, under management would probably be the size that we, we look at, you know, to do something like that. Yep. That, that, that sounds, uh, about right to me. So, you know, another kind of unique thing about your fund, you acquire assets through all stages of the CRE market cycle. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, I, you know, I, uh, in practice, are you investing in ground up development? Um, uh, are you doing value add or core core plus? Is it a mix? Could, could you talk through, what exactly does that mean? Sure. Well, uh, you know, buying through the market cycle, um, I'll, I'll touch on that real quick. So if we we closed up our, our first fund, we were going to launch a second closed-ended fund, um, I want to say like January 2020. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit in what, February or March? Sure. Um, so we were about to launch that and that we just pump the brakes and look, I don't, we don't know. Nobody knew what was going to happen during this, you know, uh, pandemic. Um, I'm like, I don't feel like locking up capital and buying assets at, you know, we're at the top of the market at that time. I, I wouldn't feel com- comfortable building a fund at the peak of the market, not knowing what the next several years were going to hold. Right. So I know so when we were standing on a, pe- a peak of a mountain that was right next to another mountain that <laughs> was even <laughs> steeper. Right. <laughs> hundred percent. And, um, you know, we were like, we can't, we can't watch this now and, and you know, uh, fall victim to that. So by, by making it evergreen, you know, even if we bought at the top and, you know, we continue to buy as it goes down and we continue to buy as it goes up, sure. you know, those returns uh, over time should, um, should be most beneficial reverses buying at the top, locking up the capital, crossing your fingers and hoping that, you know, our exit timeline lines up with the market. So that, that's what I, that's what I meant about that. Um, and then to answer your question about the types of assets, we could do construction and development and all that, but right now we're focusing on core, core plus assets to build our base uh, dividend return. And once that's big enough and strong enough, then we'll start looking at value add and, you know, some development deals and, you know, those sort of things to really juice up the the return and the, yeah, the, the equity gain. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so acquiring assets through all stages of the CRE market cycle, that's really a, a feature, not a bug of an evergreen fund that, you know, is raising capital continuously, deploying it continually. 
Yeah. Uh, allowing you to be opportunistic, I suppose, for the best opportunities that you can find while also, um, I don't want to say dollar cost averaging in, but but maybe that is kind of a way to, to look at it from one perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thesis right behind it. So where are we in in the CRE market cycle? This is the million dollar, well, billion, trillion dollar question. Um, where, where do you see us? Well, obviously, we had this market top going into 2020. And then, you know, I, I kind of heard the theory that, you know, that was there was kind of a reset of the market cycle. So then obviously there was another leg up. Um, but I, I at least heard the theory that, you know, the, the lockdowns and all that, you know, kind of threw old valuation models down the window. We are at the, at the new, you know, beginnings of a new cycle. Obviously we've hit some headwinds now in the second half of 2022. So do you think we're headed for a little bit? I, I don't know. First of all, would you say we've had a slight correction? Would you say we've had a, a moderate correction or are we still waiting for the real correction? It's a great question. If I had a crystal ball, I'd <laughs> make a billion dollars. Um, I, I we have seen a slight correction. Um, actually, there were statistics that just came out not too long ago. Like may, some metropolitan areas have seen as much as twenty percent uh, reduction in value, which to me was a shocker. Um, I have. I, I think we have seen slight, slight correction right now. I, I think we're in store for a, a further correction in the, the front part of 2023. Um, how how long that lasts or how deep it goes, I have no idea. But I do think there were a lot of syndications and and then funds that bought assets at the very peak, and I think they're going to have to they're going to have to sell at a break even or at a loss in the next couple quarters. And I think that's going to um, loosen some things up in the market that are available for, you know, the opportunities for, for other people. So I, I do think it's going to be a little bit more of a correction. Um, hopefully, you know, it's, I'd, I'd like it to be, uh, you know, quicker and more severe versus, you know, drawn out <laughs> and, you know, going on several years. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my theory, but that's, that's only my opinion. Do you think that there's enough uh, dry powder, so to speak, on the sidelines that provides a little bit of a floor? That's I, I don't want to say that's my concern, but I think that's almost, you know, I'd, I'd almost be hoping for a more uh, disruptive contraction that, you know, to see more what I would call realistic pricing. But I, I'm kind of concerned that we're not going to see that really desirable pricing. Um. I'm with you. I, I I was hoping that's what I said. You know, I hope it to be a little more severe and short. Yeah. But there is a lot of uh, cash on the sidelines, and mostly from the institutional uh, players. Uh, I'm hoping that you know, for 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 me and Dual City and our fund, you know, we we are in that mid mid small mid market range, right? Two to ten million is kind of our sweet spot. So we're kind of under the radar of a lot of the big big houses but um so i'm hoping that's that's going to be a little more available mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I agree with you i there is a lot of capital just waiting to to pounce um and i know i i think that time is when they start dropping that interest rate i think you're going to see a lot of cash flood the market again 
So, but are are the valuations more favorable? Like that kind of end in the market that you play in the small to mid market, you know, from a dollars and cents and pro forma angle, are are the economics better there? Is is there more competition? Is there less competition? There has been increasingly more competition from you know obviously when we started in 2014-50. Um, th- that's the part that I think is going to get the most shooken up from a lot of groups just buying everything in it, you know, anything they get their hands on these last, I don't know, 12, 18 months. Um, you know, as, as you said, you know, we saw valuations just skyrocket to, to prices that, you know, three years ago, it, it prices were at a point where we were like, what the heck are these people doing? And I just don't, I, I didn't understand it then. And a year ago, I was really scratching my head. Like, I just don't get it. But, um, you know, to, to each their own. I, I, some companies have to do deals to keep their lights on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's one thing about uh, us. You know, we have a sister uh, a finance company and we also have a sister uh, commercial brokerage company. You know, we, we share a lot of the same expenses. So we could be conservative and, you know, kind of hang back and, we haven't bought anything in two quarters because of the market. And we're only able to do that is because we don't have a, a large staff and we don't have to, you know, do deals to keep our lights on. So um, I think a lot of those companies are going to kind of be folding up and liquidating their assets. Okay. Could, could be healthy. could be healthy for the overall market. So, you know, back to the beginning, we talked about your philosophy of keeping investor security in the forefront. We've talked a little bit about the CRE market, you know, how hopefully it'll correct a little bit. You know, that sounds like you have some dry powder, so that might create opportunity for you. But what are the risks? What are the challenges right now in this market environment Go- going into the first half of 2023? You know, you know, what's the main risk, I guess, on behalf of your investors that that you really are looking at? This is the thing we need to manage right now. Um I think the main risk is is the economy and you know fears of a recession and how long that may be um or if it's already over i, I stock market yesterday was was pretty healthy uh but you know I, I i i don't know that's why we that's why we made this evergreen fund as long as we are cautious on the assets that we are buying and we're buying it for long-term holds and the valuations are not grossly uh, over promise at the time of purchase, I think we'll be okay. And then that will give us the ability to buy through those, those up and coming hard times, so to speak. So as long as we follow our, our, that game plan, uh, I think investor capital will be, uh, will be secure. Understood. So, th- so then those risks, those challenges, you know, in the economy, do you think those are, 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 are they mainly a good thing? I mean, are they, are they creating opportunities, you know, for, for your fund to acquire assets at more attractive prices, let's say than, than two years ago. Um, yeah, on the real estate side of things, sure. I mean, I I don't want to see you know uh, people lose their jobs just so we can buy real estate. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think I you know hate to keep, hate to keep going back to it, but you know, I think a lot of the companies that were gluttonous uh, at that time. I mean. They kind of deserve, you know, what what's coming up, and uh, you know that that doesn't phase me if they if they have to close up shop and leave because I think they took advantage of um, 
they're investors, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I hope we don't go into any 2008 scenarios. I don't think we will, but um, yeah, I do think it's going to be a shakeup. And I, I do think you're right. It's going to be healthy for, for the economy in the long term. So, so that being said, and I think you're, by the way, I think you're hitting the nail on the head with, with that, that idea of a shakeout. Would you have any advice or tips for LPs, for family offices, for accredited investors who are evaluating private placement offerings, you know, and, and trying to select sponsors and issuers that put investor security return of capital at, at the forefront, you know, do you have any, I guess, I guess, tips for, for LPs when, when they're evaluating private placements? Yes, I do. Um, and I'm not going to take credit for this. I saw it on some social media channel. Uh, some, some, some investor said, I just made 40% on a deal I was invested in and I'm furious at the, at the sponsor. Um, and what that essentially means is there, there are a lot of people that can ride a wave, but it's not the same thing as knowing how to swim. Um, which means there are a lot of groups that made a lot of money just riding the market, right? I would say family offices, larger investors, ask to see, um, you know, a, a PL of a property, you know, maybe at the time that they purchased it and then at the time where they, they sold it and see if there was actually value added. It wasn't just riding the market and just people being, you know, greedy and just paying top, top dollar for stuff. See if they actually added value. Did they increase the NOI? Did they increase rents, uh, decrease expenses? You know, um, look at that. I think you look at the group and you look at somebody's track record and if they could show that they can perform, mm -hmm. those are the groups that, that I would invest. In. Well, I think that's, that's good advice. I mean, you, you have to add value, right? That's the whole point of active management is, you know, it, I guess anybody can raise capital and, and go buy something. And then the question is, are you, are you adding value beyond that? So I think that's more than fair. So uh, Keith, I appreciate all those insights as well as just walking us through, you know, the upreach structure, the 721 exchanges and how all that works. I think there's a tremendous amount of interest in that type of product right now. Have you seen their you know, a, a lot of your investors coming in, is there a, a lot of interest in that upreach structure? You know, has that been a tailwind for your company? Uh, we, we've really just started kind of a marketing push, so to speak. It's, it's, we've always been grassroots, word of mouth, friends and family, kind of grown organically. Mm -hmm. So like our networks are pretty much tapped out at this point. So we're just trying to get the word out um, now. So I appreciate you having me on as, as part of that. Um, but yet to be seen. I think people in the last quarter have been a little cautious about putting money into anything and rightfully so. I think they should be, but uh, I, I do believe we just keep doing the right thing and our returns stay consistent, consistently growing, then, you know, it'll, it'll happen. And uh, hopefully we gain some traction and, you know, get some uh, larger uh, investors interested. Absolutely. So where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about dual city investments and your fund? Uh, just the website, dualcityinvestments.com. Sounds great. And I'll be sure to link to that website in our show notes, uh, which as a reminder, are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Keith, thanks again for joining the show today. I appreciate it, Annie. At any time, uh, this was an enjoyable conversation. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That 
that's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.